0: de-restricting uh, Greenbelt land, de-classifying uh, Greenbelt around commuter stations so that you can build a medium to high density houses. There's things like street boats where uh, whole streets could just basically opt out of the planning system, give themselves permission to build upwards and massively increase the value of, their, of, of the land that they own. Three quarters of millennials and zoomers do blame the housing crisis on capitalism. So not uh nimbyism not planning laws not other factors not political short-termism but capitalism per se if it were a problem of capitalism we would expect to see similar problems everywhere we don't we see massive variation uh between economies that are all capitalist in different ways and um, so that really cannot be the issue
1: Housing Secretary Michael Gove has declared that if young people can't get onto the housing ladder, they're at risk of abandoning democracy. This comes after decades of crashing housing ownership rates among younger generations. And it also comes amongst a series of new policies from the government, from making it easier to build on brownfield lands, to potentially talk of some kind of mortgage guarantee scheme, along with legislation coming in to ban no-fault evictions. Welcome back to the IEA podcast. My name is Matthew Lesh I'm the IEA's Director of Public Policy and Communications. Each week, this podcast asks a tantalising policy question. Today's question, will those housing reforms make a difference? To discuss, I'm very excited to be joined by the IEA's own Kristin Niemitz. He's our Editorial Director and Head of Political Economy, and has written countless articles on reports. About the UK's housing troubles. So let's start with kind of Gove's comments before we get on to some of the, the bigger housing details here. Do you think he's fundamentally right about this notion that, uh, A, I suppose we have a housing crisis, but also that that's what's driving frustration in, in democracy?
0: Yes, uh, I think it is. And that's the frustrating part about it, right? Uh, his rhetoric is very sensible. But then if you compare that to the actual policy measures that he's following it up with, there's just such a massive gap between them. It just doesn't add up. He starts with this bombastic rhetoric and then comes with these measly policies. I think it is undeniably true that that is driving uh, frustrations among younger people uh, and and middle-aged people increasingly. So millennials, uh, Generation Z. And um, that has been going on for a while. I think I had that impression um, once I was invited, uh, this was just before Corbyn Mania took off, uh, I was on a panel at some university, uh, which was on the housing crisis, and uh, I tried to make the case that it is mostly driven by government intervention, supply side constraints. Uh, there were th- the other three or four panelists were all mm. socialists of various kinds, and they were just far better at weaponizing that for themselves, and they had the audience on their side. So it it, it was quite quite clear to me at that on that day, this is driving people leftwards.
1: Interesting put there. So I, I suppose it's hard though because there's so much else going on in, in our political economy. You know, there's there's obviously all the cultural issues, which are potentially driving younger people uh, left to toward politically. Uh, there's uh, low economic growth, low-income growth. Obviously, that might link back to housing to some extent, but it's not entirely related to housing. Um, is is it possible to separate these things out, or is, is housing really, I, I suppose, are you a, a subscriber to the housing theory of everything, that, you know, all our problems almost can be linked Back to housing, as opposed to other dynamics going on in the economy and society.
0: Yeah, I don't have a definitive answer. I guess it would be possible with very fine-grained polling technique to disentangle them. Uh, as far as I know, nobody's done it. But say our own polling that we used for uh, the paper "Left Turn Ahead," I think two, two years ago, three years, mm. uh, it did show something like three quarters of millennials and Zoomers do blame the housing crisis on capitalism. So not. Uh, NIMBYism, not planning laws, not other factors, not political short-termism, but capitalism per se. Uh, and it is also, it is at least plausible to think, well, you're in your role as a renter. Um, the uh, your, your, That is your main interaction with the market economy. And most of us don't learn about economics by reading textbooks, but, through, but in practice. And it's not that people are terribly frustrated in their role as, say, consumers of mobile phones. Uh, or um, uh, going to a restaurant, or going on foreign holiday—that's your interaction with capitalism as well. These are these interactions are mostly positive, but that's not uh, what drives our impression of capitalism. It is when you spend more than half of your income on some moldy shoebox, mm-hmm. and you think, "Well, um, uh, I'm paying a lot, paying through the nose, not getting much for it." That is that leaves an impression. That uh, if you think that's what capitalism means, then you might decide. I don't like it.
1: And it does seem like for a lot of people that is a market, or at least on the face of it, there is a housing market. People um, bid for properties, people bid, uh, pay and search around for apartments to live in. And then it's, of course, it's a broken market. Um, It's not necessarily functioning the way it would free of government restrictions. I suppose is your point there that it can't really be the fault of of capitalism or or free markets if really the underlying
0: problem is something else. Well, that's exactly it. Uh, if that were, if it were a problem of capitalism per se, you would expect to see more or less the same problem everywhere in all market economies. But we don't. It is really Britain that is the outlier here, not the only outlier, um, but one of the one of the few countries that have seen house price increases of such a magnitude. The other ones, interestingly. Uh, Australia and New Zealand, uh, which goes very much against the idea that this is because Britain is full. I mean, Australia, as as you know far better Mm than I, has a a population density that's by European standards comically low. Uh, But they have British-style planning laws or or maybe do it in a different way, but leading to similar results. And um, yeah, it really is this cross-country variation. If it were a problem of capitalism, we would expect to see similar problems everywhere. We don't. We see massive variation uh, between economies that are all capitalist in different ways, and um, so that really cannot be the issue.
1: It is the issue really as simple as we're not letting enough houses be built in places where people want to live?
0: It is. I mean, Britain has the lowest, one of the lowest levels of housing supply. So if we purely look at the number of housing units per hundred thousand people, um, and if we do a, a country ranking on that basis, then by in a first world ranking, uh, Britain would be towards the lower end, but that's just the raw numbers. That's just uh, the number of housing units per hundred thousand people. If you then, if you could adjust that for size, it would look even more dramatic. So, um, I know that say, like Canada or, or, or Australia have similar numbers uh, of housing units per per hundred thousand people, but of course much bigger units, so uh, therefore less of a problem. Uh, Britain has few housing units, far fewer than pretty much anywhere in Western Europe. And they're also unusually small. So that combination, that is really what's driving it. And that then is, again, worst in parts of the country. Uh, and those are the, the the high demand areas, the most prosperous parts of the country. And that's where this comes from.
1: Yeah, I think it, it's relatively small, but also probably relatively old housing yes. stuff as well. So therefore not particularly high quality. Not necessarily having the the modern uh, housing benefits of, of kind of like a new nice housing say good insulation, for example or air yeah, conditioning so or uh, having a nice modern kitchen with good appliances and it. it's all a kind of low quality as well as mm. old as well as not enough of them it's probably
0: yeah interrelate i think it's the oldest housing stock in western europe mm. and that is of course precisely because uh after the, the second world war britain pretty much stopped building so we still have the housing that we inherited from a time when you could still build in the Victorian age. And then in the interwar period, that was maybe the, the golden age. Much of outer London was built during that period. But then the, the trouble is, if you look at an aerial map of London from the late 30s or so, it looks, you can still pretty much recognize the shape of London today because it hasn't grown very much since then.
1: So let's get into what the government's planning to do about it. So I think you've, you've rightly identified that the, the rhetoric is bombastic, but the details don't necessarily line up. Um, I think the, the big announcement uh, in the last week or so from the government in terms of housing supply was this focus on brownfields, that they were going to streamline the planning process to to be able to convert empty office blocks, department stores, and commercial buildings. Do you think know, that could make
0: some kind of a positive impact in terms of um, contributing to housing supply? It could. Uh, these are all positive steps on their own. And if Gov had simply said, look, these are some small steps, I know this is not the big bang that some were hoping for, but it's going to make a small positive difference, then I wouldn't be criticizing it because not every policy has to be the big breakthrough. It's just that if you then accompany that with such bombastic rhetoric, and then you come up with such measures, then you have a problem. Then uh, that's uh, I think that's um, asking for it to be challenged and critiqued. Um, The problem with brownfield is that there is just not enough of it. So there's nothing wrong with brownfield redevelopment. There are, in fact, some very good examples. So Battersea Power Station, that's basically just a big brownfield redevelopment project. Mm. Or the whole King's Cross area, that's a a long-term brownfield regeneration project. And great results. Uh, So if they could somehow uh, find a way to, to get more of that, that's fantastic. All in favor of that. It's just that... Uh Gove's own department a couple of years ago published an estimate, uh it, it had a different name then, um where they tried to find out how much brownfield land there really is in Britain. So a kind of a, a land survey and they showed it would be if you build at relatively high density, it would be enough for for up to one and a half million homes, which sounds like a lot at first. But the trouble is it ignores, firstly, competing users. So uh, a lot of industrial land, uh, old industrial land, Uh, the most appropriate usage is, of course, that you use it again for some commercial industrial purpose. So it it ignores all these other possibilities that there are, and it ignores the distribution. Uh, Because the old factories, the old derelict factories, um, where are they going to be? They're somewhere in the north or or in Wales. Um, You're not going to find many of those around here, say, in central London. Uh, or in the center of, of Oxford or, or Cambridge. Uh, in fact, the only example that I could think of of a, a large city with lots of brownfield, um, the only counterexample is one that shows how unusual that situation is. And that was when I lived in East Berlin, they had tons of brownfield land, Uh, mostly large factory states that they had just inherited from the GDR and couldn't use Mm. for anything else. Uh, If you have a situation like that, then yes, then you can solve the housing crisis through brownfield redevelopment. It's just that's a historically unique situation and no British city has anything like that.
1: Yeah, I think uh, going back to the the start of your answer there, that perhaps there's something about politicians who promise something big rhetorically and then fail to deliver on it. Maybe that's something that makes people lose faith in democracy more so than uh, uh, anything else. Um, The the other, um, I suppose, potentially pro-housing supply policy the government's been very big on um, is this discussion around investment zones and about building something like 250,000 more homes in Cambridge. Now, this strikes me as something that that can be, I suppose, viewed in in a positive lens. Well, of course, we should be building a lot more in Cambridge. It's one of the UK's most productive cities. There's a massive shortage of, of lab space. There's a, there's a lot of good amalgamation effects there. On the same time, though, it does feel like the government is basically kind of pointing to one area and saying, let's build a lot there. That, that feels like a form of central planning. And it doesn't necessarily feel like the right way an economy should function. It doesn't feel like housing going where there's necessarily, you know, substantiated demand per se from the market, but rather because the government's kind of just picked it off and put their finger on a map and said, yep, let's move the chess pieces there.
0: Mm. Yeah, that very much is the mindset of a Soviet central planner. But then we have a system that is essentially centrally planned in in terms of uh, land supply and planning permissions. So within that system, you can't even really fault them for for doing that. And at least in this case, they're going with the market. So they're not saying uh, we're pumping subsidies into this or Mm. uh, we're somehow trying to force this on the on um, on that area. They're just going with there is the market demand anyway. Um, there is that uh, there was uh, you c- you can read about this regularly of investors in that area saying um, we can't find enough lab space uh, we have the potential to expand here we just need the physical premises for it we just need the space for it and uh, in in that sense you could say if they if they don't just say well okay we'll we'll give you that um, even if it's just in that limited area um, then at least they are going with market signals in that regard. But yes, of course, ideally, it should. they should just say, if this works for the Oxford-Cambridge area, why not have it in mm. the whole country and then uh, let investors figure out where to go?
1: I mean, it does seem like a liberalising interaction, which is to say, if, if the government's not literally building the properties, it's just giving more permissions in one specific place and, and seeing what happens. And, mm. and obviously, they're really not wrong in terms of the level of demand. Um, another idea that's floating around, uh, and I think Grove mentioned as well, is, is stamp duty cuts. It's more on the tax rather than the regulatory side. But I'm wondering, what impact do you think that could have
0: on the housing system? That's uh, undoubtedly a positive measure if they do it. Um, That's one of the few areas where economists across the board, I think, would agree that that is one of the most damaging taxes: uh, stamp duty or or taxes on transactions are generally bad uh, because it means you get a less liquid market. You Mm. prevent transactions from happening. What, What you get is people holding onto a property longer than they would under market conditions, because at the margin, the tax is discouraging them from doing it. So you have, say, an older couple, uh, the kids have moved out Um, to the extent that that still happens. We also have, because of the housing (laughs) crisis, a massive increase in the average age at which people move out. Uh, So the kids uh, moving out could now be the kids in their 40s. But let's say they finally have moved out. uh, And now you have this uh, elderly couple living in a house that's far too big for them. Uh, where under market conditions they would probably downsize and um, yeah, the tax just discourages that because every time you do that, every time a property changes hands uh, you then have to pay the tax again and so that that is a way of, of freeing up housing space and making more efficient use of the housing stock that we have. Uh, all well and good, it's just that uh, for me the main focus should always be on growing the housing pie, growing the total size of the housing stock and then making more efficient use of what we have should be an afterthought.
1: So the other news as well in the last week is the government reiterating their plans around no-fault evictions. I wonder what that means in practice um, and whether or not it does actually, I suppose, have what it says on the tin. Will it actually help renters and the the young people who are stuck, as you said, in those little shoeboxes, paying too much?
0: Well, the term is no-fault eviction is a bit of a misnomer, um, because it makes it sound as if under the current system, the landlord could just show up at the doorstep and drag you out because they feel like it. Uh, what it really means, uh, this, uh, a ban on no fault evictions would really just be a ban on fixed term tenancy agreements where you agree in advance, the tenancy ends on that date. And, uh, when it ends, um. the the landlord can say, right, I'm not extending it. Uh, This is it. Goodbye. No fault eviction.
1: You're you're not at fault, but I'm evicting you because the 24 months are up.
0: Yeah. So they don't have to give a reason. They can just say, I'm not extending it. And what what that's going to be replaced with is a system where a tenancy can only be ended under specific circumstances where the government is giving you a list of reasons uh, saying if it's one of those, whatever it is, five, six, seven reasons. If it's one of those on the list, then you can end it. If it doesn't fall into any of those categories, then you can't. You have to uh, keep renting, letting the place to your present tenant indefinitely. And that's just an odd way of doing it because, uh, well, there are going to be all sorts of situations where a landlord uh, isn't happy with the tenant for perhaps legitimate reasons. uh, And it just doesn't fall into any of the categories that are outlined in that government list. Uh, At the moment, the government list says it's things like if you want to use it for yourself, uh, things like that, okay, then you can still do it. And my guess is that landlords will just try to find a way around it. Uh, Because what happens if, say, you're a landlord, uh, you want to get rid of the tenant, and you tell them, I want to sell the place, right? Uh, You can do that. Then, uh, let's say the tenant is gone, and you put uh, the property on the market, and you say, I want, um, an asking price of 1 trillion pounds. <laughs> uh, you would then technically you could have said, well, I tried to sell it. I just didn't find a buyer and then I'm looking <laughs> for other tenant. So you will then need some other, some follow up legislation to somehow control, uh, making sure that there's no gaming of the system. And then you're going to get this intervention spiral. Um, but that's, that's the least bad aspect of it. I think, uh, to the extent that landlords can't get out of it, it will just mean fewer people will want to take the risk of becoming a landlord in the first place.
1: Yeah, it seems like it's almost like rent control in the sense that it could lead to a lot more discrimination on behalf of landlords because if if you're a slightly riskier bet as a tenant um, because maybe you're an immigrant or you're younger or you, or because you come from some kind of minority background and you're the landlord doesn't trust you, there's a risk they might not rent to you in the yeah. first place um, or that the landlord might just pull their their properties from the market um because as a result of these regulations. I think also another interesting part of it as well that hasn't gotten as much attention is that it it could in itself act as a form of rent control. Because if at at the end of your um kind of twelve or twenty four month agreed price with your landlord, and um, the landlord then turns around and says, I want to increase the rent by this amount. Um the tenant can contest that. They can take that to a tribunal and say, well, actually, I think that has gone up too much compared to what the market rate is. And then it kind of hands over powers to a tribunal to decide whether or not the the rental increase has been reasonable or not. And and I can imagine a the situation there where you're, because there is no real, like, objective market rate other than what two people are willing to pay. Um, The tribunal that the state becomes... Uh, the decider of what everyone's rents are or what everyone's kind of rental increases can look like.
0: Yeah, that's the so-called second-generation rent control where you can freely set the rent at the outset of a tenancy, but then it is controlled within the tenancy. And if you want to ban fixed-term contracts, you have to do it that way. Uh, There is no other way to do it because otherwise you could, uh, again, as as a landlord, you could say, well, okay, I can't technically evict you. I'll just raise your rent to um, the whole GDP of the country. say. Uh, <laughs> you have to pay two trillion now, and then of course uh, you would just that would just be an economic eviction. And in order to make sure that that doesn't happen, that the system isn't gamed in that way, you then have to limit in uh, by law how much uh, by how much uh, landlords can raise the rent, and then then you're back to a second generation rent control, which is not as bad as first generation rent controls. Uh, because you still have free market pricing at the outset of uh, of uh, a tenancy and you will probably have some uh, system where they look at some average rent index and so forth but it's just it's going to be a bureaucratic nightmare. Um, they they tried to do something like that in in, um, in in Berlin for for a while and uh, it it just leads to a situation where the landlord will then say well my case is a bit different from the local average because I've done such and such with the property. And then uh, there will have to be laws on what you can do, so that um, so that landlords don't overinvest in order to have uh, a reason to uh, to to raise the rent. And then they they even have things like um, renovating, uh, installing a second bathroom is then prohibited because the landlords could use that as an excuse to raise right. the rent and, and things like that. And one of the few good things uh, about the British rental market so far has been that it was relatively lightly regulated. Uh, It was far too expensive overall because of the overall supply shortage, but at least if you were looking for a place, you could quite quickly find something. Very expensive, uh, of course, uh, insecure, but at least quick and and in that sense easy. And now we're probably going towards the worst of all worlds where we uh, pay the highest prices, but also uh, where we'll also have long waiting times and people will be stuck and not being able to find a place. It's
1: worth noting that um, in Scotland, they have introduced second-generation rent controls and it's been the exact disaster you'd expect, which is uh, the, the cost of renting in Scotland, has gone up, particularly in Edinburgh, has gone up massively and there, there is a big shortage of supply. It's quite difficult for people to find places to live um, compared to in the past. Um, moving on to some of the other... Uh, talked about policies. I want to get your thoughts on. There's been some talk, and, and we often hear this in the housing debate about, well, the real issue is not about housing supply per se, but it's about access to credit, particularly for people who can't save enough. So there's there's some prospect of the government introducing some kind of mortgage guarantee scheme where you would potentially only have to pay one percent deposit, um, and the government would guarantee your loan for for a bank that might not otherwise be willing to give you credit on such terms. Do you think that could Do any good or is it most likely to do bad?
0: Well, that's uh, definitely going to lead to another subprime crisis. But that's uh, the issue here is that uh, the reason why deposits are high is simply that in a situation where house prices are as high as they are, um, loans become riskier. So if you go to your bank and say, I would like to take out a loan three times my salary, they'll probably say, well, okay, you have a solid uh, credit record. Um, I can't see why not. Uh, whereas if you say, I want to take out a loan nine times my salary, then, of course, they're going to be a bit more cautious. And that could mean they will demand a higher uh, deposit, a higher uh, down payment as a form of um, filtering um, and, and signaling your credit worthiness. And, and that's um, just a reflection of the overall high price. And therefore, fiddling around with the deposits, uh, that's that's really not going to uh, to solve the issue. That's really just the bank's way of making sure that you are a good a good uh, credit risk, a uh, risk worth taking. And if you manipulate uh, those signals, you're, you're just going to um, – well, you're not even improving affordability really, you, you're just uh, encouraging lots of people to uh, take out mortgages who probably shouldn't be taking them, and um, you shift some of the risk to the taxpayer.
1: And it also you're likely to increase demand um, yeah. by increasing the amount of people who can borrow to, to get into houses, so we're probably going to push our prices anyway and yeah. make, make housing more expensive without you know it's the same number of housing just more credit chasing after it and the the other um, policy i've also seen talked about some kind of foreign ownership levy going after those foreigners who are buying up housing i suppose particularly in central london um, and therefore mean there aren't enough housing for for british people and of course we are two foreigners sitting here talking about this although we might not be, I guess, we're UK residents, so maybe we're not classed as foreign owners. But there is still that narrative around foreign owners, around immigrants being the kind of central issue in the housing debate.
0: Yeah, that's that's another red herring, another NIMBY excuse. Um, there are, of course, overseas buyers. Uh, but most of the time, so for a while, I was renting a place from an overseas investor. And the fact that he was an overseas investor made absolutely no difference to me. Uh, It was a landlord like any other. The only difference that meant in practical terms was that I didn't meet the guy because he lived abroad. Uh, But it makes no difference otherwise whatsoever. It was done through an agency, uh, as a lot of uh, British-based landlords also do. Uh, It would only really be an issue if somebody hypothetically just bought a place and then did nothing with it. Uh, But that is in, in reality, that's really rare. Uh, Britain in general has a very low vacancy rate, uh, so the, the the proportion of the housing stock that is left empty is one of the lowest uh, for for any um, uh, country where there is data on this stuff. So by first world standards, it's it's one of the lowest um, you, go, you you'll find anywhere. And even then, even that rate is mostly uh, is then uh, correlated with house prices across the country meaning it's uh, it's lowest in London and highest uh, in I think the northeast of England or, or somewhere which makes perfect sense if you, if you own a house uh, in the northeast of England um, which you don't need just yet um, you can leave it empty because the, the opportunity cost uh, isn't that high uh, because that's an area where the housing shortage isn't that severe whereas if you own a place in London of course you would not leave it empty because uh, the opportunity cost is just too high you could rent it out to someone, you could make some, some money from it, uh, leaving it empty is never going to be the the ideal solution. And that's why that that very rarely happens. So I think it's something like less than 1% of, uh, of the total housing stock that's, that's empty, uh, far less than that in London. And then much of that, of course, is, is short term. So you have a natural rate, like the natural rate of unemployment, uh, you have a natural rate of housing vacancy. So, yeah, short summary is uh, it, it really is a red herring. It's a tiny proportion, and tinier than elsewhere.
1: Perhaps a larger proportion, though, is that point that's often made, particularly on, on the right in politics these days, about immigrants being the key reason for the UK's housing crisis. You can't have millions and millions of people coming into the country um, and not expect some kind of housing issue to eventually eventually emerge. Yeah.
0: Yeah, that, that's true. Um, and nobody should deny that. Of course, if you add to demand when supply is static, you're going to drive up prices, and immigration is absolutely part of that. Uh, and it's it just strikes me as a strange idea that you would design an immigration system, you know, the immigration rules around the housing stock that you have. So say if people want less immigration for, for cultural reasons or because... Um, because there are too many uh, people who then become net recipients rather than fiscal net contributors, okay, these are valid reasons. Uh, then, but then it should be done for that reason rather than for uh, because of the housing situation. Uh, because that means uh, the housing stock that you inherited from the past dictates the immigration policy that the country adopts now, and that, that's that's a very strange situation. I would say. The immigration system, the immigration rules should just reflect whatever um, public preferences are or or the needs of the economy or whatever. Uh, And then if people come here, well, of course, they're going to need to live somewhere and then build the houses. So this would be a bit like if you imagine we had a situation where the number of cars is fixed for some reason, some historic uh, law that we inherited, only this many cars in the country. Then it would be true to say, if you allow immigrants into the country, Car prices go up uh, because they now become competitors for our fixed car stock. Um, and yeah, it wouldn't be true to say uh, with less immigration, car prices would be lower. It would just be a strange way to design an, an immigration system. Uh, it would uh, the, the priority should then always be: well, why can't the supply side respond to the increased demand?
1: Yeah, it, it seems to me, at least, that it's a bizarre thing to say to a, a company. I'm sorry. Uh, or uh, for a country to say to a potential immigrant no you can't come here and um, work as a doctor or nurse you can't come here and work in a tech company in London uh, despite the fact that we need your skills despite the fact you'll make us richer um, because we can't build up houses it was almost like a double whammy we're we're making ourselves poorer by potentially not allowing an immigrant who could be quite valuable um, to society but we're also not building the houses even though we know there's the demand there. Um, The the final show I want to get your thoughts on I know of to tour de force of various government um, housing policies, but there is really a lot going on in this space and I'm um, being thought about, um, is is the latest policy announcement this week uh, for the government about short-term lets. Um, th- this is particularly the, known as the kind of anti-Airbnb law um, where you're going to, for all future um, short-term lets, particularly holiday lets, you're going to have to have a national register. Um, and there's also going to be a new rule um, for councils to require planning, be able to require planning permission for something to convert into a short-term let to a holiday let. Now, there's a lot of angst um, in particularly uh, seaside communities in areas that are popular um, for tourists about the, the loss of properties to these holiday lets. Do you think this could then, I suppose, on the positive side, have some positive impact for local residents who want to live in these areas?
0: yeah again this is uh, the problem here is uh, again that if you have a situation where some uh, good that is considered essential is in short supply um people start obsessing about how it's distributed uh so we saw this in the early stages of the pandemic if you remember there was uh, toilet paper panic buying and then there was then you saw uh pictures on social media of uh Uh, shaming people for buying too much toilet paper that's because there was a a short-term obsession around this in normal times nobody cares how much toilet paper uh, other people buy Uh, it's just when uh, when there is this perception insufficient uh, supply uh, then we start obsessing about somebody might be taking more than their fair share isn't that terrible Uh, and that's exactly what's going on here that we don't have enough houses and therefore we obsess about whether somebody might be taking a bit more than they need here and there it's the the same issue with second ownership, the second home ownership, um, the empty house, I should have that, uh, that we talked about. And this is just another one of those uh, issues where I haven't seen the figures, but I would bet it's always the case when somebody talks about uh, these demand side issues. So once once you look into the figures, you, you realize it's, it's actually quite a trivial proportion and really not that big a deal and a bit of a moral panic around it. Uh, and I would bet that this is a similar case. Uh, of course, you could ban or, or severely restrict uh, Airbnbs, short-term lets. Uh, the problem is just, let's say, if a coastal town or, or, or any kind of town has a high proportion of those, that probably means that a lot of people want to go there. Uh, so it's it's probably a tourism hotspot. Mm. Uh, and then that can mean two things. Uh, firstly, if you restrict that, well, that tourism demand will probably still be there so people still want to go there and what does that mean if they can't get a short term let well you probably will have more people opening bed and breakfasts, say or hotels or hostels or some some other way so it doesn't mean that these housing units necessarily become available for, for local buyers they could just be converted into other parts uh, in, into part of the tourism industry uh, in other ways or to the extent that it does reduce tourism into the area well, okay, it could free up some housing units for local people, but it also deprives the area of, of an income stream. And mm. uh, I, I can't see, uh, surely it's a, it's a good thing if you have lots of people coming and if it's repeat business, especially if it's people who come back regularly, Um, uh, it, it, that would be the same issue as with second home ownership. Somebody having a holiday home somewhere, uh, surely that's what you want. You want people uh, lots of second homes in your area, you want Airbnbs in your area, so that you have a guaranteed stream of tourists who come and spend their money there.
1: There is an irony that these local economies are so dependent on tourism and now they want to scare away the tourists or at least make it more difficult for them. Yeah. We've been through a lot of negative policies, a lot of uh, ideas the government's going for that won't solve the housing crisis and a few that would. I'm wondering what you'd say uh, if you could either wave a magic wand or perhaps even I suppose, some more politically viable ideas to actually address this issue. So I think it's, it is obviously easier to sit here on the outside and criticise everything the government's doing or a lot of what the government's doing, the question then, because what should they be doing instead?
0: But there have been over the years, there have been several um, politicians, housing ministers, housing secretaries who were pretty much on, on our side. Uh, so I remember when I first wrote about the issue, 12 years ago, I think, uh, Nick Bowles was housing minister. He was a pretty solid YIMBY. Um, the problem is just that when when you have YIMBY politicians, uh, it always creates an YIMBY backlash, anything they try to do, and you never see an equivalent response on the pro-housing side, on the YIMBY side. So that's what needs to happen. YIMBYism needs to become a political constituency so that if you're a politician and you position yourself as pro-housing, uh there has to be a constituency of people who will defend you and who will have you back so that you can say, yes, there is an NB backlash. Some people hate me. Some people will not vote for me. But I accept that because there are people on the other side who do support me. And then you can do the equivalent of, say, what Sadiq Khan does on cultural issues when hmm. he wades into those. Uh, he knows exactly that uh, when he positions himself on the woke side that some people will hate him for it. But he doesn't care about that because he knows that others will defend him. And you need an equivalent of that on the housing side that, yes, there may be NIMBYs who hate you, but there will also be some people who will be on your side. And that needs to happen. It needs to become a more balanced situation, some symmetry, so that you can do the things that we know need to happen. Things like uh, de-restricting uh, Greenbelt land, declassifying classifying uh, Greenbelt around commuter stations, so that you can build a uh, medium to high density houses around. I mean, there are literally commuter stations that are surrounded by muddy fields or, or, or very low density um, sporadic housing, which which need to be absolutely developed to, to a high density. There's things like street boats where uh, whole streets could just basically opt out of the planning system, give themselves permission to build upwards and massively increase the value of, their, of, of the land that they own because you now have... Um, rather than a house which has only permission to be, uh, or a plot of land with permission to have three-story housing, you now get uh, to, the the permission to, to build to eight stories. That means your property value is going to explode for, for that uh, plot of land. Things like that uh, need to happen. Um, and yes, yeah, so, so you need some combination uh, of, say, changing incentives um, to overcome nimbyism, but also there needs to be a backlash against nimbyism. There needs to be a more... Uh, a more proactive Yimbyism, and um, I'd say also an element of NIMBY shaming.
1: <laughs> well, Kristen Nimitz, NIMBY shamer in chief and the IEA's uh, editorial director and head of political economy. Thank you so much for joining the IEA podcast. It's been a pleasure, absolutely fascinating discussion. If you are enjoying this podcast, please do subscribe on your chosen podcast provider. And if you'd like to learn more about the IEA, please visit iea.org.uk.